Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and make profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 213. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with David Sable. He is the portfolio manager at Special Situations Fund and professor at Columbia University, teaching the course Entrepreneurship in Biotechnology. I became aware of David when he gave a presentation at Ian and Mike's Microcap Club Leadership Summit, I think about one to two years ago, and I've been a fan ever since. Life sciences, healthcare, biotech, medtech make up a huge portion of small micro and nanocap companies. And while most are pre-revenue early stage in the clinic, that doesn't necessarily mean that every one of those opportunities are for the doctors and experts. Sure, you need some basic understanding of statistics, but as you'll come to learn during the course of my chat with David, that can be acquired and put to good use. As David expresses multiple times throughout our chat, investing in life sciences and healthcare is an exercise in problem solving. And I really enjoyed learning more about how to apply that simple concept in an area I always thought you needed eight years of medical school to understand. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 213 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with David Sable. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at www.streamrg.com. 
That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream was built by Mosaic and unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'm very excited for our guest here today. As you probably heard in my opening that I that you just heard, uh, I, I heard David uh, give a presentation recently. Oh, by recently, I mean maybe it was, I think it was a year or two ago at the Microcap Leadership Summit hosted by Ian Castle. And uh, joining me right now to do a long-form interview here today is David Sable. He is the portfolio manager at Special Situations Fund, as well as professor at Columbia University, teaching the class Entrepreneurship in Biotechnology. David, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So I'd love to start off with where your passion for investing began, because I know you didn't start off being an investing. If people caught your presentation from, from that event or go on your website, you were, you were in the field. So would uh, lo- love to hear where, where your passion for investing began. Yeah, you know, I like, I like being a problem solver and investing is a great way to kind of solve problems, figure out who's doing things right. Uh, yeah, I started my career as a doctor. You know, went to med school, did a obstetrics and gynecology residency, delivered lots of babies, studied reproductive endocrinology and infertility, started two uh, in vitro fertilization programs in a reproductive genetics company. And along the way, I learned a lot of, you know, the kind of nuts and bolts of business. And, you know, when my children, you know, are now a little bit older, they were like seven and four at one point, we had just sold one company and took one of the IVF programs private. And I took a year off. I said, I'm going to take a one-year sabbatical from medicine and I'm going to get it so that my kids know who, who, I, who I am when I walk in the door. And uh, that one-year sabbatical, I started getting over time offers to do consulting. And uh, a friend of mine who ran a, what used to be called a prop desk at Deutsche Bank asked me if I do some work with them on healthcare investing. And that one year sabbatical is now in it's like you know, 17th year. Uh, I got a offer to, you know, this one fund kept offering me a job and I kept saying no. And a great way to land a job is to have a good place really want you and you just keep saying no they finally make you an offer you can't refuse so i joined uh, the special situations funds back in 2005 they raised a fund for me uh and said you know go ahead and find a way to make money they said you speak medicine you speak science you speak business you speak healthcare. focus on what you know and uh it was a uh, just a wonderful intellectual exercise. Met fabulous people. 
and really let me leverage what I learned in medical practice for, you know, it was like 15 years worth and just apply that same kind of problem solving ability in a, in a new direction. And uh, the people I met in the small healthcare companies that I was kind of attracted to were fabulous people, you know, really ambitious and smart and wanting to solve problems themselves and help people at the same time. And I just kind of just didn't look back. I said, this is just kept trying to do, show up for work every day, do what I did as best as I can. And uh, I hope I've got another three or four decades of this to, to, to squeeze in. But so it's do a great, great thing to do. So do we. Absolutely. By the way, I love how, don't you love some finance people? Like, ah, oh, you're, you're an healthcare, you're a science guy. Use it. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, science, you're fine. You'll be okay. Well, it is, it is a, uh, <laughs> the science and the healthcare part was fine. It was the things like valuation and trading that kind of got me, uh, you know, it's like one of probably my, my most read article from back when I was writing for Forbes was something I wrote. It's called my first really dumb trade. And I just walk through in excruciating, painful detail how I just kind of led myself down the garden path and did all the wrong things for the right reasons. And then I just kept justifying it for myself. Like when you know, fell into that trap where you just think, well, it's just a matter of time till the world sees things my way. Well, it turns out that my way was really wrong. But uh, yeah, thankfully I learned from it. And I'd like to say that I you know, don't make mistakes anymore. I make them all the time. But, uh, you know, over the course of a given day, week, month, year, you know, in general, you just keep making your process better. And, uh, you know, we'll never bat a thousand in baseball, but you just get really good at getting on base. And uh, it's just, you just continue trying to improve. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. That's what my whole firm does that. You know, it's like, we're, we're never going to do it perfectly, but uh I was going to say, you must, you must be a sabermetrics guy, you know, just focusing on getting on base versus, you know, the, yeah, I, I love that. It's all, it's all funda- <laughs> fundamentals. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, one of the things you loved about investing was the idea of problem, problem solving. And you said that you derived a lot of those skills from your experience in the field, being a doctor, you know, work, working with IVF and whatnot. So, can you, can you get into that a little bit more for me? You know, what, what were some of those problem solving skills? What was it about your experience working in the field that then helped you be as good of a healthcare investor as you could be? Well, it's, you, know, you go back to medical school. One of the things I loved about medical school is they spend the first year or two teaching you really basic science, you know, laboratory work. You're not evaluating complex disease. You're learning exactly how the heart pumps and exactly what makes a muscle contract and what causes pain and things of that sort. And you bring those basics down to the really complicated things you see in the ward. And they kind of give you this discipline to break every problem down to its simplest component parts. There's always a level that you can approach every problem to. And you assess the quality of the inputs of your decision-making. And the beginning, I just didn't see that in investing. I figured, oh, there's some kind of magic to it. There's some kind of knowing the market or, you know, it's, and it took me longer to realize that it should have, that it's the problem solving is problem solving. You ask the right questions, you gather data, 
you draw some conclusions and you kind of find a way to test your, your thesis, your hypothesis. Well, healthcare investing is exactly like that. And I found that, you know, even the most complicated biotech companies, you know, really heavy science and complicated, sometimes complicated capital structures and the need to operate at a deficit for maybe a decade at a time, you break it down to the stuff you can understand, you can measure, and you assess, okay, is this enough for me to make a really good decision? Because you're not gonna make a perfect decision. These are not the types of investments where if you really comb through the financial statements and get down to the cash flows and assign appropriate risk levels that you can discount back to you know, just, a, just a number, like a really good you know, kind of Warren Buffett value investing type stuff, which I love. You just can't do it much in healthcare. So when I approach a healthcare uh, company that I'm trying to evaluate, okay, what problems are they solving? And what are the tools that they're bringing to it? And the tools usually come down to basic science, one, applied science in healthcare, number two, and then just business acumen, number three, and then the specifics, what am I buying and how much am I paying for it? So you break it down into those steps and you do it every single time you make a decision. It's like we say, it's like, you know, if you're in sports and you, if you have a golf swing, if you, uh, you know, trying to get on base in baseball, or if you, you know, if you're a carpenter or you're a dentist, you're a surgeon, you have a process, you know, you, you, know, you do your, in surgery, you set up your surgical field, you get your exposure, you isolate the organ you're operating on, you identify the specific things that you need to cut and tie off, and you do it step by step by step. You just don't go in there and wing it. So I found that particularly in healthcare, since you need fluency in medicine and you need fluency in the underlying science, that if I just start off with the, the stuff that I can measure, and if I start getting to things that I really can't understand at the level to make a rational decision, I just stop and go on to the next thing. You know, Or if I find that the way the company is going about what they do particularly in things like therapeutics or devices. You know, if it's dr drug is being tested for disease X or disease Y, okay, well, how are you gonna show it works? What are the specific measurements you use? Because in healthcare, you know, we kind of think it's kind of an, I know it when I see it type thing. Oh, you're, you're, you're getting better. I can tell you're getting better. Well, the reality for the drug development world or the device development world, you wanna show something works, you gotta have a real tight metric and you gotta apply it to statistics because you know that the FDA is gonna look over your shoulder. If you get something approved, insurers really need to know that they're paying for an outcome. So you get this kind of a discipline is imposed upon you. So this is something that I bring to the investing world and something I teach my students for when they're starting a company, which is really just a big exercise in problem solving, is every step of the way define what it is you're gonna to measure to determine whether you're doing the right stuff or not. Because you can convince yourself of anything. You know, we all have our biases and we all kind of, it's natural, we kind of you know, get, get a little lazy sometimes, especially you buy a stock and the stock happens to go up and you're not sure why it went up. 
that's kind of dangerous. You know, it's like, you can think, oh, I'm a genius. You know, it's like, where my instinct was right, my gut feeling. It's you know, In science, we try not to rely too much on our instincts and gut feelings because they can turn against you really, really quickly. Absolutely. So it's pro- probably more of a long-winded answer than you wanted. No, but, I, I uh, just, I want to bookmark that your answer for anybody that is new to biotech investing or new to healthcare investing. And really, I think that's a good maxim to think is that, is to just simplify your process. It's all about, it's all at the end of the day, it's all problem solving, just like when you're assessing any public company to a degree, right? You know, it's, 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 it's one more step you have to layer on top. <laughs> yeah. Like, like with, to be, you know, with, especially in microcaps where I live, you know, it, it, a lot of these biotechs, there's a, Maybe, maybe there's the the veil of heavy science in some of these as well. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's it's a bit more intricate. It's a lot more different formulations for solving different things. So this might be a dumb question, but I love asking dumb questions. Um, <laughs> do you do you th- do you feel that you need to have some sort of scientific background to be successful investing in biotech and healthcare? You know, you can do it without it. But here you've got to, you still need to hone very specific skills. And, you know, you need, if you don't have heavy science, you can get away with a really good understanding of the kind of the language of healthcare, as well as an ability to assess data and and, and statistics. You don't necessarily need the biology, chemistry, and physics, but you do need at least to be able to, to analyze data and know that it's very easy to lie with statistics. So know that people are approaching, showing the truth in a truthful way. So let's take those one at a time. The language of science is, is, is evolving from one of storytelling to one of extreme precision. And when I got into the investing world, my, my North Star has always been trying to find areas of the economy, and particularly my area of the economy within healthcare, where we're going from kind of a analog storytelling, I know it when I see it method of data gathering to a true reproducible, specific, exact, precise measurement method of decision-making. And I think when you go from that analog world to a digital world, you're kind of, you're kind of rocket fuel for innovation. It's so much easier to prove something makes a difference. So much easier to you know, design an, either a formal experiment where you have two groups, you know, you know, with one difference in how they're treated and see if there's a difference from just kind of an observation and try to, you know, kind of bring various types of biases into a decision-making process. So getting more specific, you know, when I was in med school a long time ago, you know, what was lung cancer? Lung cancer was a malignant tumor in the lung. You know, it's, you, know, you took an x-ray, you saw this thing sitting there, you operated, you pulled it out, you put it under a microscope. You say, yeah, this, is, this thing is bad. So we're gonna try to, we'll either remove the whole lung, try to get rid of it, or we'll remove the lung and then we'll blast you with poison. You know, we used to call chemotherapy, you know, poison also known as chemotherapy, which will stop any rapidly dividing cell in the body from continuing to divide. So I mean, the most rapidly dividing cells are tumors. So we just blast you with this horrible stuff. And if there was residual tumor left, it would kill it. It would also kill all your skin, kill the hair that's growing, which happens rapidly. 
the cells that line your digestive tract are very rapidly dividing cells. So you'd have horrible nausea and vomiting and all this awful stuff. And hopefully after a few months of this horrible treatment, you were cured. Nowadays, a tumor in the lung, it may be defined by a very specific single amino acid mutation in the coding of the genes that tell the body to make specific proteins that make up that tumor. And that single very precise mutation in the genetic code of that tumor can act as a key and a lock. So rather than batting the door down, with, you know, ramming the door down or like blowing up the wall to get in the room, you pull out your key, you open the lock, you let yourself in, you close the door behind you. A lot of biotechnology, a lot of medicine now, you hear the term precision medicine. That's what they're talking about. Now, how do we apply that more generally to investing? When you start with the name of the disease that the company's going after. So the you know, nowadays you may get something like, okay, we're going after tumors with this specific mutation. That's music to an investor's ears. That means that the people that they're testing their treatment on are very, very specifically defined. It means that the treatment itself was designed as a key, not as a bomb, so that it's really precise in what it does. And it means that you can really efficiently answer questions quickly. You can solve your problems quickly and you have data that's very specifically designed to answer those questions. Like when I, when I evaluate a drug that's being developed, the first thing I ask myself is, okay, let's assume the drug works. Is there anything about the way that we're going about to show it that's going to obscure that fact? And that happens a lot. So let's go from let's go to another end of the spectrum of diseases. Let's talk about something called, you know, something like Alzheimer's disease. Horrible disease affects you know millions of people. It's progressive, it's chronic, you just deteriorate. But in reality, Alzheimer's disease is not a very precisely defined entity. You know, what is it? It's age-related, age non-specific description. Uh, loss of cognition, cognition, our ability to understand and think clearly. Again, a very vague description. So we call things Alzheimer's disease without really knowing what it is that we're treating. In some cases, it could be just a generalized deterioration of the brain. In some cases, it could be an inflammation of the brain, something called cerebritis. In some cases, it could be a long-standing, decades-long viral illness that caused it. Yet we call it the same thing. So if we're trying to design a treatment for that, how do we know what level we're operating? You know, medicine has gone from being uh, from a vocabulary of kind of systemic diagnoses or organ-based diagnoses. And now we're down at the molecular and cellular level. So if, even if you're not a scientist and you can kind of stratify the risk profile of a you know, way pre-revenue drug that's being developed or device or procedure that's being developed by saying, okay, what are they developing? How, how well designed and how specific could they design something for this? And how are they gonna test whether it works or not? 
Yeah, there are things that we, you know, there are muscular skeletal uh, neurodegenerative diseases, horrible things like muscular dystrophy that we're trying to design treatments for. And you say, all right, well, how are they going to measure whether it works or not? And they do things like, okay, how do we do with a six minute walk? Let's get someone to walk for six minutes or so and see how far they can go, which is, it's a rational way to try to get a idea of whether this works or not, but it's not very precise. There's so many things that go into your ability to walk for a certain amount of period of time. Alzheimer's disease is typically assessed by something called the ADOS-COG scale, Alzheimer's disease assessment scale of cognition, ADOS-COG. And I'm always very, very uh, skeptical when they introduce a score or a scale as the means by which we measure something. Because in, you know, in the case of this, what they do is they take five different measurements of the person's ability to function and think over a period of different times. And then they add them up. They give one to zero to five in each one. And the total is out of 25. Problem is a lot of this stuff is just looking and seeing how the person, you know, how are they doing? How are they able to respond to certain stimuli? Are they able to take care of themselves? There's something called a global assessment, which is, okay, do they seem to be getting better? Do they seem to be getting worse? And then they add it up to the score and it's this kind of illusion of precision. But in reality, it's back to, I know it when I see it. So, and, I Okay. No, finish that thought because I, I wanted to follow up on that. No, and, we, we, and we've seen over the years that it's extremely difficult to handicap this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you can't handicap it, you can't make a really rational decision. And, you know, as much as we want to will something to work because we want to help people that are suffering, and maybe an enormous group of people that we could help if it does, you got to be really honest with yourself and say, Am I really handicapping this in a, you know, kind of in a way that I know that I'm making a rational decision or am I just kind of letting my heart and gut feeling run away with myself? And if it works, then I'm kind of kidding myself that I was really able to predict it. Right. So, yeah, it depends on what kind of investor you want to be. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. I, I was going to, that was going to be my next question because in healthcare, it's, it's hard sometimes because you can, it, it, it seems, it seems like your approach is you're looking for more of the precision medicine type stuff where you can, you're not just dealing with a scale. You're actually can, you know, assess the data really understand and, and not just have to look at something to see whether or not it's working, right? Well, you know, it's, it's, it comes, a lot of healthcare investing is deciding where on the pure trade to pure investments continuum you live. Because you can look at something and say, boy, 
this is really cheap for a company that's well-funded with a three years of runway and going after big indications. And they're in phase one trials already in humans. And you realize that the truth isn't going to come out for several years. And there may be some identifiable value inflections along the way that will potentially make a trade better. There's a lot of people that do that superbly. That's just not my core competence. I try to invest in something and forget I forget I bought it, just let it sit there. How do you do that with healthcare? Because I mean, more often than not, I mean, it's, we're talking mostly on the pre-revenue side, of course, but because more often than not, and especially on the drug development side, of course, you know, these are tend to be companies where, you know, they have those two to three years of runway and you know, oh, they're definitely going to be raising money you know, however much it is, they're going to dilute sure. shares. So how do you think about that? If it, if you're just going to buy and forget that you own it, but you're continuing to be diluted probably for a while until your thesis plays out. Yeah. You know, it's a question that you, you ask on the venture side when I invest there. And what I tell, you know, when I teach my students how to start companies, you've got to go out and raise enough money so that the next time you need money, you're selling something that's a lot more valuable than it was before. So the first thing for these revenue, uh, non-revenue generating cash burning companies, the first question is, what's this company gonna look like when the money runs out? Or in my case, I try to say a year to 18 months before the money runs out, because that's when they typically tend to go back to the marketplace. Because you, know, you may have made phenomenal progress. You, know, you may be buying something that's inherently much, much more valuable and the company that you're buying stock in at a $100 million market cap, even though it's years, you know, you're eight years away from revenue, three years later, it's going to be, maybe it's through safety trials. So you know the drug's not going to hurt anybody. It may be through its first efficacy trials, meaning that it's sending a signal that's showing there's an awful lot of good this drug could do if properly developed in the right group of people. And it's worth a lot more, both to people that want to buy it now and wait and see it appreciate, to potential partners. You know, the great dynamic about drug development is you've got the possibility of a company developing you know, a drug, putting it on the market themselves, commercializing it, and making lots of money for itself that way. But there's always that secondary market of enormous pharmaceutical companies that know all these little companies are ready to buy them at the right price because they've got enormous infrastructures, huge commercialization sales forces that they need to keep giving things to sell because they've got drugs that are going to go off patent. So there's a lot of moving pieces in, for example, the biotech and biopharma marketplace that gives you potential means to realize good investment gains without waiting until the drug is a billion dollar a year blockbuster. So it's you have to be patient. You don't necessarily have to be that patient. I just got it. So what's your, you know, I always ask every, every investor that comes on here about their ideal investment. So for you, when you're looking at a potential company to bring into the portfolio, I don't know if it's the ideal investment for you with healthcare. It's almost, what's the ideal timing <laughs> you know, that you're looking at? It? I, I try to bring in an investor's sensibility to it. Meaning I want to buy something that's really valuable now, that's gonna be a lot more valuable sometime in the future. And I wanna buy it at a really good price right now. The stuff I can't predict, I can't predict. You know, I am, I am very fortunate 
that my investor base for our funds is very stable. We don't have people taking lots of money in and out. They don't tend to uh, you know, chase performance. Like, you know, they, they're, you know, if we have a down quarter, they're as likely to put more money in, knowing that over the years we tend to, you know, we, we tend to do well than they are to pull money out. So I'm willing to be patient and let a thesis play out as long as the thesis continues to be reinforced. So the first key about a great, for to me, what's great investment is I understand it. And I'm very quick to pull the plug, either because I just don't have the background to understand it, or because the background that I do have, I don't understand the strategy. Like, it's like the way it's presented to me, I'll just say, you know, I just, I just don't get it. You know, maybe they're smarter than me, maybe they don't get it. But if we, if we, if you lose me that early, I'm just, I'm not going to try to talk myself into something. I do want to make sure that the, you know, my usual path of checking all my typical boxes are met. And last thing is, I like to, you know, in, in the best of all worlds, I'd like it to be something where it fills a gap within the world's needs. You know, great thing about healthcare investing is, you, you know, I can still be a little, kind of be like when I got up every morning as a doctor. And that if I do my job right, someone's going to go home, their life is going to be better. So here, you know, if we fund a drug that takes care of people and relieves suffering or relieves pain or cures a disease where we didn't have that before, well, that's great. You know, now let's be, let's be honest, I'm not running a non, I'm not running a nonprofit. This isn't a charity. I'm not writing grants. My LPs do not invest in my funds to make the world a better place. They give charity on their own. But on the same way, that's another good guide to things that the marketplace will find valuable later on. So one of the things that we know that when we invest in pre-revenue companies that have a long runway until they're making money is that our ability to model those, to do that really specific, you know, that big grid on the Excel spreadsheet where we discount it back and we come up with a price target now for something that's not gonna have a sale for the next seven years. We know that's kind of an exercise in, you know, it's a discipline, but let's not kid ourselves. These price targets, we could, we could retro-engineer anything we want to. Right. So we just have to have a little, we have to have guard, guardrails on, you know, next to it. You know, is this really filling a real need in the world? Is it following the tenets of science? Does it make sense? Are they designing their clinical trials well? Again, oh, these all fall under the rubric of do I understand it? And, uh, you know, I'm constantly asking myself the same question. Am I talking myself into this? Or is all the, or am I in a disciplined way putting the data set together that I can't not do it because it's just, it's just the right thing to do? In your career, traditionally, what's been the most successful, uh, uh, I would say, the individual sector within healthcare? You know, has it been drug development, vaccines, medical devices? What, what has helped you get to where you are in terms of your career success? Great, great question. Past 15 years, it's been oncology. But the more interesting part of that is why has it been oncology? And it kind of goes back to what we talked about before. You know, in 2000, between 2000 and 2003, we elucidated the human genome. 
suddenly we had a Rosetta Stone to translate lots of vague healthcare phenomena into a digital language, into something that we could test and sequence. And we had this, it's like we had this new vocabulary that we got to speak that made us like superheroes in certain parts of medicine. And yeah, I, having practiced, you know, I entered med school in you know, 1983 when things were much, much less precise. And you know, the, the real heroes back then were these internists who wore bow ties. And we would say, oh, they have tremendous clinical judgment. Well, what was clinical judgment? It was having seen the same thing so many times that you recognize it and they were brilliant. They had amazing memory, amazing recall, but they didn't have these easily reproducible measurements. When the genome was elucidated and you can go and you take a piece of a tumor and you stick it in a Petri dish and you cut it up and you sequence it, suddenly the disease was talking to you. It used to be a one-way thing. You would watch the disease and try to figure things out. Now we had a way to get the diseases to talk to us. In my own area of reproductive medicine, you know, IVF and things of that sort, I was really fortunate to work in a laboratory where they invented some of the techniques by which we could biopsy an embryo, fertilized egg that's developed a few days, and check its genetics. So we used to have patients that would come to us having had four, five, six, seven miscarriages in a row. And these are the saddest stories in the world. You know, these people, wonderful people, they would walk in the office, they were broken. You know, it's like just, just getting pregnant again and again, losing it at eight weeks, 12 weeks, nine weeks, 13 weeks. And they just hated, you know, the, the, the next pregnancy test, just, they would just shudder. And we found a way to, in many cases, have them get pregnant with IVF and biopsy the embryos and find ones that were genetically incapable of turning into a term pregnancy. And there are certain people that were predisposed to this. So it happened again and again and again. And here, you know, we would do a genetic test on the embryo and we would choose the normal ones. And in these specific cases, you have just transformed someone's life. It was, it's, you know, it's like, there are families that I have a standing invitation to Thanksgiving dinner, no matter where I am, rest of my life. But more importantly, it's, you've really done a great thing, but applying that to the investing world, it was utilizing the precision of the science to advance our ability to solve someone's problem. And you, know, you look at the fields where that's happening, oncology is one, inflammation is another, uh, immunology, huge, infectious diseases in a lot of ways. So you look at what we've done with the vaccines now, amazing. But what's common to all of these is that we're using extremely precise digital technology that allows us to measure and precisely de design treatments versus the old kind of shotgun approach. Now, the other area of healthcare is still there. You know, neurology, psychiatry, lots of areas of women's health, OBGYN, my old field. These are where we're still kind of in that I know it when I see it phase. And these are big challenges for the next decades, which is really exciting for those of us working to bring about cures, it can't happen fast enough for the patients themselves. But in an investing world, and if you're trying to make the world a better place and get wealthy at the same time by investing, nothing wrong with that combination. Then, you know, it's kind of a guide for the areas that maybe 
a lot more efficient and effective in doing it. So when you ask what sectors of healthcare, you know, oncology is like a perfect example of it. But underlying why oncology, that's because it's moved into that much more precision, precise area. And there we can start bringing in not only the genome, we can start using computing power, you know, AI, machine learning, things of that sort, and put those two, take those tools off the shelf, put them to work in healthcare. Awesome. I, that was, man, that was an amazing answer. Wow. That was, that was awesome. So my next question, you know, we've talked about precision medicine a lot. And in my career, I've gone through waves of interviewing biotech companies where, you know, they won't say precision. They'll say, oh, it's a personalized medicine approach. So what's the difference between precision medicine, personalized medicine, or is there no difference? <laughs> precision language versus personalized. It's one of those things where I'm constantly asking in management meetings, say, could you define that better? What do you mean by personalized? It may be that they're looking for something extremely identifiable that once you identify it is very actionable and really is, is the bullseye to what's causing whatever symptoms or whatever process they have. In other cases, it's kind of, it's that illusion of precision. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's we can talk ourselves into thinking we're being very exact. And then, you know, I'll say, I'll say great. Well, where's your background data showing the cause and effect? Show me, where, where does it really work? Like there's, there's, best guess and some of the type of things that seem like they make sense. Well, that doesn't really cut it. And then there's associations. You know, it's like we find that we can, you know, at any given time, there's, you know, there's, there's so many tens of thousands of proteins circulating through the body in various levels. And there's credible uh, fingerprints of what we call gene expression which messenger RNA, where the DNA tells the cells to make proteins. And you can actually you know, measure like a thermostat, various processes that are going on in the body. It's amazing where we are now versus when I was training. And you literally, you stick a probe into the body and you kind of test for, you know, how much sugar the cells are eating or, you know, just kind of, you know, some combination of all these, you know, the different proteins that are being made at any given time by saying, okay, we're gonna measure six or seven or 10 or 20 or 100 levels of messenger RNA, which tells us, you know, it's kind of like looking at a construction site. Oh, are they doing plumbing now? Are they building drywall? You know, it's like body does the same thing. So that is a type of, you know, if you say, okay, we're gonna measure six or seven or 10 or 20 or 100 messenger RNAs. And then we're gonna go back and using really good computers find associations between a pattern of those levels and what's going on in the body, either a disease diagnosis or a suggestion of a treatment. And that type of association is a lot better than seems like it makes sense kind of stuff. It's not perfect, but it's a much more precise way of kind of drilling down. You know, it's like, it's like we do with, with, with weather. Okay, certain combinations of, you know, barometric pressure and amount of moisture in the air and temperature will predict something. Not exactly, but it's pretty good. And then there's finally, when you recognize the specific causes and effect, 
what, we, what in science we call a mechanism of action, where we say, okay, when this, you know, this receptor is, is downregulated, then this process can't happen. This hormone cannot be made in adequate amounts. And this is what comes from it. The kidneys shut down, or you've got abnormal growth of hair or abnormal fat deposition, or you don't ovulate, or you know, really precise. We know the specific signal, we know the specific mechanism, and that gives us all sorts of options for intervening in ways that'll change it. So precision medicine can be someone just saying, oh yeah, it makes sense to me, and I've noticed this correlation. Not so great. All the way through, well, we crunched a tremendous amount of data and consistently found this relationship. We don't know exactly what the cause and effect is, but this is a really strong relationship in thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of observations. And that's good. That's good precision medicine. And then there's the best precision medicine. It's like, yeah, we understand exactly the pathophysiology from the cell to the organ, to the system, to the disease itself. So like most things in science, it's a spectrum. It's a, it's a, it's a continuum not a kind of yes, no, on, off switch. Absolutely. So uh, my next question for you is, you know, in healthcare with biotechs, obviously we've said a number of times, most of, most of which are pre-revenue. Management is crucial. Um, again, in biotech and microcap land, relying on that, that management. And, you know, it's interesting. For the most part, you get managers that have experience in big pharma. They, you know, they were part of that team at, you know, this company, this big pharma, that big pharma. And then they come down to microcap land and, you know, it's a culture shock to say the least. Um, so what are some of the things that you look for when you're assessing various management teams, especially in these smaller microcap companies? You know, do you like that they had that experience? Again, is it a spectrum? Some is good, some is bad. So love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question because there's no specific you know, history that predicts what the core competences are going to be now. So, you know, frankly, you know, I first people that invested in my first fund when I who's this doctor? You know, it's like that's not exactly the type of thing that says, oh, experienced investor here. So, you know, what you want to do is you break it down again. What problems is this company facing? What vocabularies do they need to speak? What competences do they need? And do they have the ability to do that? So yeah, I like I like getting right in the, I, I get right in the weeds. You know, show me your the data that you're really basing your big decisions on. What experiments are you doing that tell me this, you know, this is that gives me faith that what you're doing is gonna work. And then I sit back and I assess not only the stuff they present to me, but the level at which they present it. Like, how do they really understand this stuff? And, you know, they, and that, that may be, do they understand the chemistry? Do they understand the ability to design a clinical trial where if the drug really does work, the trial will show it instead of hiding it? Are the measurements they taking reliable, accurate, reproducible? And are they applying the right statistical tests to them? Now, there's no particular background that says they will have these competences, they won't. 
like, I don't care if they walked off the street with a history of, you know, being a barber. You know, if they picked up the ability to know biostatistics, epidemiology, clinical trial design, that pretty good concept for chemistry and pathophysiology, God bless them, I don't care where they got it. But they need to have that. And then there's the other half of these things. I've got to try to assess how truthful they're going to be. Because a lot of these companies thrive on the ability to tell investors things that they don't understand. And this goes back to being a doctor. You know, when you're a doctor, you realize pretty quickly that you can convince just about anybody to do anything because you possess a vocabulary that they don't. If you've got a convincing enough manner, then they will, you know, they, they want to fast forward to just trust you. There's a lot of management teams in very technical areas, not only biotechnology, but like certainly, certainly tech areas and you know, any area where you start getting into advanced engineering or advanced applied science. And if you don't lack that vocabulary, at some point you got to say, either trust them or I don't, or you find someone who's going to fact check all the stuff they're asking to check. First few years I did this, I never told people I had a background in medicine. I wanted to see to what extent they were take, they were thinking they could take me for granted and just pass off things that sounded good. And like, you know, it turns out, oh, and as you would expect, this is what happened. And look at those curves and look at the graph. And look at, oh, it's so impressive. And look at the separation. And, you know, the magic in, in statistics, it's always the p-value. And if the p-value is less than 0.05, therefore it's good. If the p-value is greater than 0.05, therefore it's bad. And God, you can obscure so many lies and such bad judgment and treatment or just naive, poor work by relying on that. So first thing, can I trust them? If I can't, meeting's over. You know, it's like, just stay long enough so you're not being unbelievably rude in the meeting. You know, you just can't trust the data that you need to make rational decisions. And beyond that, once you realize that they know what they're talking about, and you can hold them to that standard. And that when they release the results of the phase two trial that really shows whether the drug works or not, that at least they're gonna be given it the best possible shot to work. And they'll pre be presenting the, failed, the outcome in a, in a real positive way. Like no one's gonna be able to guarantee you it'll work. You know, if, if they tell you that, then, you know, then, then they, either they're being hopelessly, hopelessly naive or they're assuming you are. But within, you know, within the we're all grown-ups world where, okay, we're making calculated, rational investments, then if they're doing right by us, then that's good. You know, I'm not going to look at anyone's resume and give them a pass. Because frankly, I've had people, you know, you look at the resume, it's amazing. It seems like they know everything. And then it turns out that they're just like, you know, one more, you know, lying son of a bitch like anybody else. On the other hand, you may find someone who's on the, on the surface, the resume doesn't seem to predict any super level of expertise. And then you start talking to them and they just blow you away. And that's, I, I love that. You know, you, they, you can go any level of, of talking. You know, it's like you can get down, take it in any direction and they'll go right with you. Yep, we had the same concern about the statistics. Here's the way we approached it. Yep. Traditionally, this has been a difficult group of patients to define. Here's the way we approached it. And at some point, it's always reassuring. They'll say, you know, that one I don't know. 
That one we've, we've got a consultant for, or our chief scientific officer has experience with that. You have a meeting like that, and it's just, it's so validating to the company. But I can't, I found, I've learned the hard way. I can't fast forward through that just by looking at what their credentials were. You know, there are phenomenal people that spent 10 years at Pfizer or Roche or, or Genentech. And there are people that spent that time there and they come out and it just doesn't mean anything. You know, I tell my, my own students, I'm blessed with the ability to teach a class at Columbia University, which is really, they've been at it a long time, phenomenal people there. I tell my students, I say, if you think that someone's going to look at your, your diploma or your resume, see the Columbia University, it's like, they'll see it, they'll note it, and it'll be forgotten right away. From that, you know, from the point on, you know, it, it means nothing. It becomes you. You know, the you part is a lot more important than the Columbia part. And that's true, too, of the person that comes in with the resume that says XX Community College. You can bypass any bias that people may have to that with the first conversation. It's like that, that will be forgotten and you'll get the call back and the person from Columbia won't. You know, if you just bring that, you know, stacked competency and the ability to, just to show you know how to solve problems. Absolutely. I got to say, that is some really incredible advice when you're talking about management. And, you know, for those listening, I think a lot of those lessons and those experiences could be used across the board, not just when you're talking with management teams from healthcare companies. I mean, tech, consumer cyclical, you know, like I always love it when you can hear a management team just acknowledge like, yeah, that's been a, that's been hard. That's been a problem here. Let me tell you how, you know, rather than just trying to spin it into like, you know, ah, yeah, no, we're, you know, whatever some of these promoters might say, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's a key, it's a key word you brought up. Yeah. It's like in, in my shop, the thing that you never want to be called is promotional. It's like I say, Oh, the most promotional management team I've ever met. What that, you know, to us, what that means is they will tell you anything they think you want to hear. Yep. And at that point, it's just worthless. You know, it's, it's your, if you're going to make, if you're a professional investor or a rational investor, you don't have to be a professional investor, be a rational investor. And you want to make sure that your decisions are based on good work because that's how you get your edge in the market. It's not by somebody right. telling you a secret or, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, if you want to do that and you want to do it consistently, you need to be able to trust the management teams and the information that they put out. And uh, it's very telling, but it yeah. also makes our lives easier. Yeah, because once we peg a management team that way, they're not, they're not going to win their way back into our graces. They're not going to come and admit, oh, we lied last time, but trust us this time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I say promotional or like best intentions, I mean, in healthcare, I would say for the most part, in most management teams like I've interviewed or talked with, even if it's a company that's a hope and a prayer, you know, they have the best intentions, right? Yeah. For the most part. I mean, yeah, they're collecting a paycheck, which is, usually pretty high, um, but for, for a, you know, 50 million market cap company, they're taking half a million. It's like, how do you pre-write How do you just not, 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 not in the ones we invest in. There yeah. you went. There you went. <laughs> a salary just big enough to live on in Cambridge, Massachusetts or San Diego or right. San Francisco. And the rest is all options. Right. The rest it, is all, you know, this, you know when you, when you find you think, you think of your management team, you're paying them, you're financing them. They're an asset. Had, you know, what they taught me in finance that you try to match the length of the, the duration of the financing vehicle to the length of the asset. 
Your management team is a long-term asset. And what is the longest term financing vehicle? It's a piece of your company. So you match that up, de facto, your incentives are aligned. Right. So if somebody comes in and they want a, sh- they want a really high salary in lieu of their equity, it's like, I'm sorry, like you may, that may be the way your life is set up and you may have high costs, you may have, I don't know, you have child support, whatever. And I sympathize with that, but we need our, we need our interests aligned. Right. And we're financing, you know, your, your, your compensation package is the means by which we are financing you as an asset. Right. If you're a, if you're a commodity, you, know, you come in and you do administrative work, all very valuable, but easily interchangeable like most commodities pay you out of cash on hand. If you're a truck, we'll take out a, a, a lease, the length of the duration of the life of the truck. If you're a building, we get a mortgage. If you're a CEO, we get a mortgage on you on the basis of the value you create in the company. So I don't know, I, I hijacked that company. No, no, so, but, but you're, no, that was, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, at the end of the day, like the point I wanted to make on the best intentions is like even those who may have, you know, comparably, you know, um, salaries or or compensation packages that are competitive, right? They might still be running a hope and a prayer company and they still have the best intentions. So it's it's sometimes, to be fair, it is still so, so difficult to be able to discern from those management teams that might be spinning a story, but you look at all the other stuff and you're like, all right, you know, I don't know. That's, that's where you got to ask yourself, am I really making educated judgments here? Right. And you can, yeah, there's, and there's sometimes there's, there's fast forwards through it. There are, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with investing alongside some of the best decision makers in the field. And that's what I love about, you know, you file, you know, people file. Now realize if, you know, a, you know, na- name, you know, name them, Atlas Venture, RA Capital, you know, it's like flagship, the company that spawned Moderna. You know, it's, it's, these are, you know, wonderful, brilliant people, but they make handicap portfolio based decisions. So they're not, you know, it doesn't mean every decision they make is going to be right. But you know, you may decide that that's going to be part of your decision process because you lack some of the heavy science lifting that you can't do. There's room for that. But if you're doing it totally blindly, you don't want to drive with one eye closed. You don't want to enter a you know enter a healthcare investing with no understanding of the vocabularies that go into the handicapping success and failure and things like that. But uh, you know, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an I'm okay, you're okay. We're all grownups. You know, know yourself. Don't expect them to spoon feed you. But on the same hand, if it seems like you can't trust them, go elsewhere and move on. I, this is another question that actually goes back to my question earlier about whether or not, and, and I, I hope, how much time do you got? I, won't, I, I got a couple more questions. How much time do you need? Perfect. Okay, here we go. So uh, another another question I had for you, and this goes along the lines of where I asked, you know, can you be a successful um, healthcare investor without that background? Here's another take on that question. Can you be a successful retail investor in healthcare? Or is this really an institutional game? You know, again, might be a dumb question. I love asking them. Not a dumb question at all. I know some absolutely brilliant retail investors that do very, very well in healthcare and biotech. 
in life sciences. I call it life science a little broader than just biotechnology. You know, they've they've got they know what they know. They've found sometimes they find an area within healthcare where their knowledge is a good fit for the investments opportunities that are being placed in front of them. They've honed a way that they can collect, you know, they, they, it's that problem solving process. They can collect data, they can ask good questions, they can collect data, they can make rational decisions. And very importantly, they can understand kind of what in the, in the shop we call the so what test. They can understand the so what test aspect of the, of the decisions they've made. Is it really one that handicaps what this company can do? Or are you just kind of setting yourself up to do the wrong thing for the right reasons? So it's, you know, same way, I don't care about the pedigree of the management team. You know, if, if, the, if the person works in a kitchen in a restaurant and over time they've developed this constellation of vocabularies, insight, knowledge of the marketplace, and a good idea of how to make, you know, appropriately sized bets based on, you know, the inherent risk of this stuff. God bless them. They could be amazing investors. You know, it's like it's like the, the proverbial take somebody out of the stands and then let them play ball. You know, it's like there's only four guys left on the team. Let's pull yeah. someone out of the stands and suit them up. You know, those people are out there. You know, cool. It's just to keep know yourself, though. Mm-hmm. You know, don't assume that that's you without really stress testing your own knowledge. But that, frankly, that's the same thing we do. I'm constantly beating myself up. It's like, do I really know enough about entity X to say I'm making a real professional decision here. And yeah, every week there are things that I say, you know, I can't do it. Same with Charlie Munger. What does he always say? He says, I can't invest in that. It's too hard. That's his, his favorite quote. Yep. It's good enough, good enough for Charlie Munger. It's good enough for me. Oh, that's great. So I want to now transition to your class that you teach at Columbia, uh, Entrepreneurship and Biotechnology. And I asked you this off camera and I'll ask you both versions of it because your response was even better. So my dual part question, why would anybody want to start, have a startup biotech company? And then on top of it, why wouldn't you want to start have a startup biotech company. So love to hear both sides of that. Yeah, it's like, well, that does the answer to mine. It's like, why wouldn't anybody want to start a biotech company? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it's, you know, really, I, I tend to, I take a really expansive view of entrepreneurship. You know, it's, it's, it's problems. Again, it's problem solving. You identify a problem and you want to solve it. Solving it means starting a business. And it lets you marshal creativity and individuality and, you know, focus, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, I tell people that healthcare is a theme park for problem solving because our healthcare system is so screwed up. You know, I, I give talks to med students and I say from day one, start logging all the problems you notice. And over time, you're going to start thinking of solutions. And you may come out of your training thinking, I'm going to go right into doing something to solve this problem. And it may end up turning into an unbelievably successful world-changing thing. So what I love of my particular course, I only let scientists and engineers into the course. And it's not a course for business people. 
know, maybe once in a while, I'll let like a budding, budding investment banker in, and then we'll beat up on them for the rest of the semester. But uh, I want the scientists and the engineers, and I want to give them the vocabulary where if they can come up with a solution to a problem they've noticed, I want to give them the vocabulary that they could run with it as far as they can. So if you've got the temperament to be able to deal with the constant changing of, you know, you, know, you get stimuli, you get inputs all over, the, you've got to constantly question your assumptions, your motivations, your thesis, and be able to pivot on a moment's notice, or even worse, uh, admit failure after a few years, where really nothing tangible has come from it other than the fact that you learned an unbelievable amount of stuff. And if you can live with that kind of, you know, stimulating day-to-day -day focused, you know, in the moment, but still uncertainty, then great. You know, if you can't live with it, just take my class. You can see what it's like. Uh, I do think that healthcare and science, because of the tools that we've developed over the years, not only the genome, but also the massive computing power, I think we're finally in a position where we can start tackling biology. You know, biology always wins. It's the most complicated thing in the world. You know, we, we grasped chemistry and we, we didn't wrestle chemistry to the ground, but we've got to, we're really fighting the good fight with chemistry. Same thing with lots of parts of physics. Information technology, we're winning. You know, you've got massive computing power. You've got unbelievably cheap storage and unbelievably, you know, limitless memory. We're doing amazing things with IT. Mechanical engineering, we're doing amazing stuff with that. Biology has always been beyond us. But this century, 21st century, this is the biology century. So some of the great advances we're gonna make as human beings are gonna be in that playground, in biology. So if I can take people that are super fluent in biology and also give them the tools to be able to wake up every morning and say, okay, how am I doing on corporate structure, IP, proof of concept, funding strategy, staffing, you know, stay organized, stay focused, be able to know how to put together a good term sheet, be able to know how to finance assets, be able to know how to talk to bankers, how to navigate the private markets, the public markets, how to do business development, you know, then, you know, that's a, that's a neat thing to be doing in education. So... And as far as who would, wouldn't want to start a biotech company, well, most rational sane people or people that, you know, recognize, <laughs> you know, I, I could scratch the same itch sometimes within a big company. I could develop, you know, I can develop huge things within, you know, a, a big developed company that with a bureaucratic structure with all the resources I need. And also I can work alongside of people that have this competence that I don't have and really don't have the bandwidth to learn. And then there's everything in the middle. You, know, you can be entrepreneurial in a lot of settings. It doesn't necessarily mean you got to come up with building your own company from scratch. It's not all, you know, the movie, the social network. That's just one version <laughs> of it. So uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a, it's a great group of languages to speak with a great group of people. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it's a good thing to try on young part of your life. Oh, for sure. What would you say is the most common question or 
maybe category of question that you get from your students when they ask you about either being a portfolio manager, just biotech and healthcare, life sciences in general, entrepreneurship. You know, I'd love to hear that. (laughs) The biggest question when they're finally comfortable enough to ask it, what does an investment banker do? Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It's it's amazing because the, the scientists and the engineers are so quick to say they don't really understand the business world. And then, and then once they are kind of shown that it's not all that complicated, you know, it's like, you know, the, the secrets of, you know, accounting and finance, these really are disciplines and they need to be approached again, humbly in a workmanlike way and really understand them. But, you know, my scientists, my engineers, they're like, oh my God, it's so complicated. You know, I never really understand that. And then I go in and, you know, it's like, and then, then my, my friends who are bankers, like, oh, yeah, healthcare, we, we, we got that figured out. And a lot of my friends that are in the tech world, they tend to underestimate the complexities of, of biology. Whereas the scientists are a little bit more likely to say, oh, no, I'm not smart enough to understand accounting. It's like, well, sure you are. You know, and frankly, the accountants are with a certain you know, enough time smart enough to understand biology. It's just going to take a hell of a lot longer. So the uh, that's yeah they, they really they just want to kind of unlock the most basic concepts of of business, which was very really amazing to me in the beginning. You know, what the disconnect was there, just how how brilliant they were in their particular areas that require so much discipline, and they were so quick to say, "Oh, that that stuff's beyond me," when in reality it was really within reach. They just needed to apply themselves to it. Absolutely. All right. So we're, we're rounding the bend in our interview here today. And, you know, we're at the question that is my favorite question to ask everybody that I have on here. So what would you say is an investing experience that changed your career the most or had the most, had the biggest effect on you? You know, it was probably the combination of that first really stupid trade I made, which I don't want to belabor that. And the other was my first 100x investment. And, you know, in microcap land, and it's particularly in high risk areas like healthcare and life sciences, you're really going to make your money on your 10x to 100x returns, the ones that really work well. And that first one, I looked back and I really, I made myself go through the discipline and say, okay, where did I do the right things for the right reasons? Where did I avoid doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons? And where was the combination of the, you know, the, the grid that's just really luck, doing the right things for the wrong reasons or avoiding the wrong things for the right reasons. And I had to admit that the biggest thing that went into that 100X, which was, it, it, just, it was a great investment in pay. And, and now it's long ago that I don't worry about my investors hearing me say that, but is that a lot of it was pure luck. And that it was very humbling in a way, but it was also very much that it was kind of reassuring that if you just keep working on your process and you keep making it more likely that you'll make more and more good decisions and less likely you'll make poor ones, these will fall in your lap. And uh, so it's like, it was, it's something because I came out of the really bad decision-making process. I learned so much that it made me a much, much better investor. I came out of the good outcome, recognizing that 
I made some pretty dumb decisions along the way, but it worked out anyway. Which all that it told me was, you know, it just your process is much more important than anything. And, you know, and just and just to constantly be on top of what you're doing and never, you know, don't give yourself a pass. And that was, in the long run, that was a very reassuring thing. And I guess that was the best, uh, I guess that's the best answer I can give. Not, not a particularly interesting one. But no, that, that, that was great. But I am going to follow up on one part of it. When, sure. it. when it comes to, you know, some of the maybe biggest learning experience when it comes to the process, you know, because a lot of folks might, you know, our basic life science, especially in biotech is like, oh, it's a, it's a, what's, what's the word? It's a 50, 50 chance that uh, it's good or not good. You know, like that's part of their process and maybe part embedded in their thesis when they're sure. looking at a company before their trials come out, you know, what were some of the things and, and, you know, it's a 50, 50 chance, right? They're wrong. Oh, that sucked. Or the right, like, great, I'm a genius, yeah. you know? No, but, it's, it's, yeah. Most, most important lesson, you can never know enough statistics. It's really, it's, it's, it's a, it sounds like a mundane topic. It is so telling. And you, you, you were, it's, it's, it's kryptonite against bad investments. It is a, you know, it's, it, it's like, it's, it's rocket fuel to make better investments. If you can really look at data and, and I don't mean PhD level, just being able to say, okay, what, what are these numbers telling me? Are they really, what's embedded in this data set? I, I like to, I always tell the management teams and the good ones are happy to do this. I say, don't give me the summary statistics. Don't give me the averages and the means and the comparison of that, or God forbid, just the p-value. Show me the raw data. Mm -hmm. Show me where it falls on a graph. And then I can say, okay, how is this distributed? What is this, what is this hinting to me? And how do we go out and, and, and go from there and really analyzing it? And it helps you to make a decision independent of others' interpretations. It also gives you a means to assess how good their thinking is. And it's, it's what you're hearing in the background is my dog, by the way. But uh, the, uh, it's, 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 it's invaluable. And anybody can learn statistics at any point. You're never too far in your life. You could be one of those people say, oh, I'm not a math person. You can still start learning statistics. And it's it gives you a real insight into the world. I was gonna say, even your dog is like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, statistics, I get it. It's fine. Yeah, I think, I think she's agreeing with she, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right, well, we're, we're about there. So, I mean, to close this out, you've given us so much great advice for new investors already. And that's usually my last question. But, you know, is, is there anything looking ahead, you know, when it comes to various new breakthroughs or new technologies on the horizon that have been particularly interesting to you that you're looking forward to seeing how it plays out either for the rest of this year or in the years to come? Yeah. You know, I'm looking for, you know, we're, we're going to really rule the world when we start. Uh, changing the diagnoses of diseases. You know, when we start calling Alzheimer's disease something reflecting what it really is, you know, and when we start, you know, in, in my old field, there are things, you know, it's like, you know, they used to call it toxemia of pregnancy, then they called it preeclampsia. We don't understand it. And it's like, you know, why, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, why does certain cells that we call prostate cancer ruin people's lives? And why do certain ones we just get to leave alone. And it's like, we're, 
we are going to conquer, we're not going to conquer biology, but we're going to have, you know, more and more entities are going to talk to us. You know, it's like, you know, my old fields, like I, I made everybody laugh when I was giving a talk the other day. I said, we've been trying to get sperm to talk to us for our centuries. We found a way to get eggs to talk to us, but we can't get sperm to talk to us yet. And name, name the, the ailment that bothers us. And we're just going to tick them off one after another in our, you know, in our lifetimes. There are things when, 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 when you're retired and watching your grandchildren run around that were worries to us, worries to me, maybe not big worry to you as an adult. They won't even be a thought to them. And it's all going to come from, you know, just kind of understanding better, you know, constantly redefining what we know, applying our new tools. And that's really exciting. You know, 40 years after the ENIAC computer was turned off at the University of Pennsylvania, we got to, you know, the, the Apple II was, you know, the Macintosh was, was introduced. And it was like, my God, if you stopped in 1985 and said, we've reached the pinnacle of computing, we have the Macintosh. We didn't even have the internet back then. So you think of, you know, in vitro fertilization is 40 years old now. Where's that going to be 40 years from now? You know, what, what was, you know, the Wright brothers did their first flight in 1903. 40 years later, we were flying around the world in airplanes. And 25 years after that, we landed on the moon. Yeah, so it's like, just try not to lose this sense of wonderment. And my own bias is that the real wonder, the theme park is going to be in biology. Because the tools that we have are just, they, they, they match biology finally. And just sit tight. It's you know, just go along for the ride and enjoy it. It's going to be really exciting. Man, what a, I'm, I'm ready to run through a wall for you right now. That was, that what a way to end it. Uh, David, wow, that was great. Uh, with that, where can our audience go and find more information on you? Um, I think you have your own personal website and then also on social media, right? Yeah, there's, well, if you, if you Google David Sable, you'll get all this information about the CEO of Young and Rubicam. <laughs> the world's biggest advertising. We, 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 we live about a mile from each other. We get each other's mail. And that's what, that's what you'll find. But, uh, you know, I do, uh, if you, you know, you Google my name, or actually my social media handle is DB Sable, which is where I am on Twitter and all the writing I do. If you stick my name with Columbia, I stick my name with Biotech, stick my name with IVF. I, I've written the same article over and over and over again, hundreds of times. So you only have to read like two or three of them and you'll know everything that I know. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, and, uh, and if you go on Twitter, drop me a line, always happy to talk. I don't talk about individual stocks because my, my firm's compliance policy will not let me do anything other than throw off a like a allusion to a Moderna or something like I did before, breaking the rules before. But uh, beyond that, I really can't talk about stocks. I love talking about ideas and investing in medicine, healthcare, biology, any of that stuff. So uh, pleasure to be on your show, Bobby. I really appreciate it. I, it's an pl absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck. Stay safe. And I'm really looking forward to the next time we get a chat. Looking forward to it too. Take care now. Thank you.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.